Hi, everyone. Today, me and Tete are going to be talking about three of my artworks from the Book of Joel, which you can read on Tapas, that are currently in the Holy Arts Virtual Exhibition, Reflections. Links are in the description for more information. So as you can see, there's a couple of artworks that we're going to discuss today, and we're going to be using them as a launchpad to discuss more themes in the Book of Joel. The first one you see here is... Uh, the modern tantalus and then beside it the one in pink is home and then the one at the very end which has you know joel and malka in a bathtub is called intimacy so we'll be talking about all three of these works in detail and you can look at these works in more detail by looking at the links in the description so first of all tete you know you've actually really helped me talk a lot about joel and think more about him because you know, it really, really surprises me because you said that even as early as December last year, you felt that there was something more to Joel than meets the eye. Yes, yes, I did. I mean, I didn't want to necessarily say anything because I always believe in giving, you know, a creator all the agency that they have with their own creation and everything. But I don't know, there was something very interesting, I don't know, just potential about Joel. I, I guess it's because there was some sort of gravity he emanated, at least to my view, or at least a sharp edge that he gave off. I was hoping that you would develop more with him and, um, you know, Lowen's character and just uncovering a full, it's, it's been an amazing experience, but yes, I, I did back in December send something, there was more, I just didn't know what to say or if I should, um, but I was hoping to see more. Um, even uh, even when we were doing the uh, role play, as much as I thought, you know, with my character, I was hoping to see more of him. So when we were entertaining the idea of him, um, how do I say, developing a friendship, if you will, with my character, I was, I was quite happy with that. Mm -hmm. um, to see more of his character, because I, I think the interesting thing about Joel is that he brings a conflict. And I, I think in order to have anything that is kind of compelling, you need a conflict, whether that's with a person, their own self or external factors, you know, sort of the classic conflict of struggle that we always see right. played out in life, but also in literature. Mm -hmm. How does that compare to Sam? Because Sam also has struggles in his life. Sam does. Um, Sam has conflicts, but these are more external. Um, they're not really internal. And also, Sam overcomes his conflicts a good deal. I mean, he's ambitious. Um, he does indeed go to Hollywood and become a... Um, probably no spoilers, but we're not sure what Sam will do at this point. Um, but I, you know, it, but, but here's the thing. Joel, on the other hand, has to work through his conflicts because he's shackled by these psychological uh, chains, if you will. Well, Sam's not. Sam's very liberated. The only thing stopping him is just external factors. You know, he's Sam's got the energy of uh, Freddie Mercury in the 70s. Mm -hmm, he does. Right. He's very optimistic. Very optimistic. I mean, we could be floating down a barrel in Niagara Falls and I say, oh, we're going to die. And Sam's like, no, it won't. It will be fun as we go over the falls. <laughs> right. Or maybe Sam would say even something crazier like, hey, you know what? I have the ability to save us. Just watch me. Then he, oh, my gosh. He's, he, he should. He's like, um, 
he he just has the most uh, uh, the most amazing audacity. It makes him fun to be around. But he always seems to resolve his conflicts, even finding a job. He goes cold calling. Um, Sam is charismatic. He just it, it just happens for him. So a lot of times. Exactly right. And Joel, would yeah. you say he's charismatic? Yeah. Joel, is, he, he commands authority, I think. I mean, when he uh, presents an argument or a debate or simply walks in a room, I think he provides an arresting authority that make people either pay attention to him, give credence to what he's saying, or else maybe feel intimidated by him. I think Joel's intensity at times, or at least the authority or gravitas that he exudes, I think it... Um, I think it intimidates a lot of people. And unfortunately, this may lead to being distant with people, people distance from him um, because they're intimidated by him or they resent him, which leads to frustration. So Joel has to struggle with that within himself, I think. True. So unlike Sam, he is not really charismatic. No, there's a difference between authority and charismatic. Charismatic is when a guy comes in like a Las Vegas entertainer and somehow sells you the Brooklyn Bridge for 30 bucks and you Mm -hmm. think you own the Brooklyn Bridge Um, but authority is where someone comes in you know they have the weight and gravitas you know they're speaking the truth but you don't necessarily embrace it or find delight or go and do something with that person of authority Mm -hmm. that makes sense so to this piece, which is the modern Tantalus. Basically, it's an illustration showing some of the, you know, some of the stuff that we just talked about, which is Joel and how he self-shackles and self-flagellates. Yes, exactly, exactly. So this is a very uh, modern, wonderful approach. Um, I guess we'll start off art-wise, if you'd like to, about the Mm -hmm. piece, if you like. Yes. So first of all, how do you see the piece? Because you're one of the people who was watching me as I was drawing it, as we were talking on Discord. Yes, yes, I was. So, and that was an honor to uh, watch that, you know, being um, depicted in real time. So I guess, um, how do I say, I'll just start from it from an artistic point of view. So what you have here is just a nice horizontal view of the golden ratio. Most of the time, golden ratio is like vertical, but the golden ratio here with the composition, um, the, the difference of contrast with the textures, the colors, and the palette itself is very fascinating. It's very modern. It feels a little bit like Gauguin in terms of color palette, mm-hmm. but maybe more modern. Um, but the composition itself feels very Renaissance and so does the subject matter. So, you know, subject matter and composition feel kind of like a Flemish master, like, you know, the way Flemish masters would incorporate uh, the golden ratio or pick classical, you know, themes to depict in art. Um, But here, what we have here is instead of the usual conflict of, you know, mortals versus gods and such, or, you know, the, the excess of something or the lack thereof, we're actually dealing with a very um, self-reflective inward struggle of a man, you know, who is full of contradiction, you know, um, he shackles himself in his own hubris, he denies himself happiness, 
And yet, oddly enough, he derives satisfaction um, from proving a point that he is right because he magnifies the worst qualities that he self-imagines of himself makes us worse than wants it to be and then wants to be right. So, you know, that is the highest form of hubris is wanting to be right no matter what the cost. Mm. Um, so this is an interesting approach to that concept. And the colors are very beautiful. Uh, the contrast, we have the fuchsia sky, we have the waters themselves kind of reflecting a, a mix of reds and scarlets and maroons and purples and fuchsias. And then we have the, you know, sort of, sort of tropical looking kind of fruit and everything. Um, it just has a, a very beautiful, uh, lush, striking feel. And it's, it's just a wonderful blend of the modern, of the psychological. And then of course, you know, the horizontal golden ratio with the classical, you know, content theme. Mm -hmm. Thank you so much. I think that's a really great analysis. And maybe we can talk a little bit more about what he's denying himself. What are those fruits representing? The fruits are representing a lot of things. Um, the fruits, I think, are representing, I think, happiness, connection with someone, um, learning to let himself be loved. And I think above all, you know, physical happiness. Um, you know, you know, how do I say sexual happiness, I think, mm -hmm. and, you know, just, just connecting. And, and also too, I think maybe, maybe the freedom to overcome his shackles and enjoy life at its fullest, I think. Very good analysis. I think it's all of those things. And especially I think sexual happiness. What do you think about Joel is like, so against that? Why does he want to deny himself sexual happiness, do you think? I think it's because, I guess the easiest way to articulate it is that he doesn't, he wonders, I think he's worried, he's more worried about the idea of humbling himself, making himself vulnerable and leaving himself to the devastating effect of being rejected or something not working out or not finding happiness which to somebody who has a pride complex, that can be the biggest um, form of humiliation. And it's not even really humiliation, it's devastation that you weren't right, which is a strange form of humiliation, but it does exist. And I think that's what frightens him the most. I think admitting that he is vulnerable or admitting that he was wrong or you know, taking a risk on something and have it backfired on him because he always wants security. He always, this is a man who will never buy a lottery ticket. Unlike Sam, who just, you know, bought out all the lotto. <laughs> um, True. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So that, that, that's what it is with Joel. I think this is why he pretty much self you know, this kind of shackle, if you will, in his life. Um, and I think also too, Maybe he worries about himself, how good he is as a person to do that. You know, maybe he feels like he can't connect to other people or he's afraid to connect to other people because will they return that for him? Like if he's giving a hundred percent, will they give that back or, you know, will it all blow up in his face? True. Mm -hmm. So that's the main problem, right? I think that's the main problem. Right. And unlike other characters, why do you think Joel is the one who is so fixated on this point in particular? Well, I, 
I think it's a matter of pride, really. I mean, you'd be surprised how much pride really, and this isn't narcissism, really. I mean, there's a difference. Narcissism is where you actively harm people for your own gain. I mean, that's just the thing of narcissism. And, and you somehow think you're immutable or immune to any kind of reproach or fault finding. Mm-hmm. No, I think, I think Joel's is a very isolating kind of pride. I, I think it's an isolation. He's afraid to get hurt. So he doesn't reach out because you can't get hurt if you're not reaching out, if you're not doing anything with anyone, you know, it's a bit like can't drown if you're not in the water. Right. Exactly. You know? mm-hmm. Yeah. But, um, and you can't fall if you're not flying. Um, but I think with Joel, I think he self-imposes that, like I said, the fear, I think also, I think he needs to get over his own complexes about himself. You know, I think he has some, not necessarily inferior complexes, but I think he thinks of himself as worse. It's not like he doesn't think himself as unworthy, but he thinks of himself as worse. He thinks of himself as too cynical, too selfish, too proud, too arrogant, um, too hard edged, you know, Mm -hmm. Joel is definitely not a soft boy. He is not. I mean, they ought to make a, they ought to make a new genre out there. No more soft boys. There's hard boys now. (laughs) Right. Um, Yeah. That's so I I think that's why he, um, he has these complexes. I think it all comes back to the root of pride and not wanting, not wanting to get hurt. Right. And is it because also that he's, he, out of all the characters, do you think he's the one who has for the longest time longed for, you know, sexual and romantic connection more than the other characters? And this is why he denies it to himself the most? I would have to say so. Yes. I would have to say that would be the case because um, the other characters, this is a very distant thing on their mind. I mean, they're, maybe they're thinking about it, but it's not of any importance because they're they have other things that fulfill them. They have, you know, different friendships, which is to say that, you know, Joel, yes, he does have friendships. Um, just let me adjust my camera here real quick. Um trying to fix that. Um, but he does have friendships, but they're they're kind of I don't want to say they're insubstantial, but they don't give that void that he's looking to fill. So I think Joel, out of all the people, I think he's the one that longs for romantic love and connection the most. And he longs for it um, because he's a one person people. You know, I don't think he's, he can't, he can't really be in a group of people. Um, I think he can, but he can't connect to multiple people at the same time. And I, I think he just wants one person who understands him and he can understand that person. And I think that's what he's looking for. You know, Joel is not a social party animal. So he juxtaposes with Sam. And, you know, as we realize, Sam himself kind of struggles in the personal life department as well. Mm-hmm. Right. So they are a contrast, Joel and Sam. Yeah, there's their contrast. They juxtapose, you know, you have Joel at one end and then Sam on the other and it's it's kind of interesting to see how they respond to those struggles and um you know how they may or may not resolve that i think joel for the most part resolves it sam i don't know i think sam doesn't really see it as a problem therefore there's no resolution required 
Very good point. Because not everyone wants the same thing, even though on the surface they could be saying the same thing. That's true. You know, you can claim to want something, or you could claim to say, "I'll fix this," um, but then in reality, you may not really believe that, and you may not really do that. So I think with Sam, it's always very vague and ambiguous what goes on with Sam. Right. That's very true. Yeah. Right. And in terms of um, how long you've known Joel since last year. Even back then, when you know you first started getting the idea that he was a deeper character than he initially appeared, did you always feel that he was a self denier and that he always longed for romance? Hmm. I think I did feel not that he was a self denier, not in the beginning, because he's very argumentative and kind of pushing his way through things, especially the way we did the role play, and it was like, hmm, all right. Um, but you know, cause, cause he was a little bit like pushing his way through a lot of things. Um, so I didn't think of him as a self-denier, um, but I did think of himself. I did think of him as something of a romantic, um, cause I kind of sensed he had a similar approach to how Andre does things. It's, it's, it's the fact that he, he sent, he, he longs for authenticity I, I think uh, the thing, the main thing about people who are romantic in every sense of the word, whether it's like seeking out, you know, sexual connection or, you know, whether it's even people who just want aesthetic or, you know, like myself, I, I think what a lot of people crave is authenticity. I mean, which isn't to say other people don't, but I mean, one of the main key factors is authenticity. You don't want fakeness. I mean, it's, it's either a hundred percent real hundred emoji on there or no. Right. And unfortunately, like we talked about before with, you know, how Andre saw Sam, he doesn't see Sam as authentic, right? No, I mean, Andre likes Sam, you know, he knows Sam is a good kid. He means well, but he doesn't trust Sam as genuine or authentic a lot of times. And this is a quality that he likes with Joel and he feels like he can, you know, find a commonality with that. You know, they, these men are very different. You know, Andre's just a very big blustering man who bellows his way through a lot of things, but he's authentic. You know, I mean, yes, he may have a bad explosive temper, but that doesn't mean, you know, he won't ride and die with you, you know? True. And, and Joel is the same way. Joel may, um, you know, seem at the very surface, very argumentative, very proud, difficult maybe to get along with. But once you peel back all those layers, Joel is very authentic. Um, he cares very much for people and he is ride or die. True, he is. Did you yeah. ever feel like he was um, you know, inclined to have a relationship? Because someone can be ride or die, but then they don't necessarily want or they can't really keep a relationship due to their character due to their character and personal preferences. Did you ever feel that Joel was someone who struggled with that? Or do you think like even back then in December, did you feel like he could overcome them eventually? I don't know. It was too early to think about that for Joel. Sometimes you don't, you don't really think about those sort of things until you get to know them better. So I, I didn't know who it would be. Um, Ironically, when we were role playing, I thought it was going to be my character, Sasha. Right. So I thought, 
Yeah, I was almost on board to ship Joel with uh, Sasha in the role play. I remember that, yes. They they had a rocky start, but I thought some of the best things, and unfortunately that's a trope that I kind of like, is kind of the rocky start. And then, you know, they develop a relationship and a friendship through a rocky start. And then they peel back layers and they realize these different things about each other. That was kind of a trope I've always had a soft spot for. And I kind of explore with different things that I, I, work with with relationships um mm-hmm. so i was kind of hoping for that but i guess joel does kind of go through that doesn't he i think with with malka yes exactly he does yeah but yeah, yeah. back to that to the whole sasha thing because i think that's where this whole started this whole thing started about joel developing as a person and eventually getting over his complexes i have a question like back then did you feel that Joel could be someone who could be with Sasha? Because I thought that was an interesting thought you had. Because back then I thought that Joel would be pretty much like one of my other characters, the dean, you know, the Sam, Sam's uh, professor, the dean of the faculty of law at his school, who is Benjamin Cox. Benjamin Cox, as we talked about before in a previous episode, is a very, as you described him, a sexless man, right? Mm-hmm. Kind of just passionless, he doesn't really care about, you know, a lot of emotions that are not logical. And he's not someone who is very sensual. He actually has a lot of difficulties expressing himself sexually. He does. <laughs> you know, by the expressions on my face, the displeasure. <laughs> yes. And he's also somewhat deceptive in a way because he says that he's very romantic and he's very, um, how does he describe it? Uh, someone who who is very loyal to his wife and he tries to make everything great for her by remembering all her, her anniversaries, but it's actually empty. It is empty. That, that, that boat has flown. That, 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 that teapot is empty. That vessel, that oil vessel is dry sister. (laughs) Yes, Um, it is. Yes. Um, Yeah. I was terrified by that prospect, but I never thought of that possible for Joel. I mean, I was honestly hoping that, you know, once Sasha and Sam kind of got over the top layer of everything, because first they were bonding over language and politics, but then, you know, Sasha needs someone who's going through like social awkwardness like herself, you know, Mm -hmm. Um, and I thought, you know, Joel was really sincere about that apology he even went up to Kai and we all know that Kai is terrifying. It's like going up to a ter- terrible God of death when you have to, I mean, mm. Kai in any universe is, is terrifying. Um, uh, even as a human. <laughs> <laughs> um, so I thought, well, Joel really had the guts to go over and apologize to Kai for Senka because Senka's too shy to accept an apology on her own at first. Um, so I'm thinking, oh, this boy is very genuine. You know, and Sam began to felt a little too disingenuous at times. And I thought, I don't know, Sasha does not, does not, she needs somebody who's genuine and maybe struggling through the same things and they can bond through their struggles and help each other with the struggles because, you know, sometimes it's better to go through a struggle with another person who's going through the same or a similar struggle. Then you're able to build each other up and actually push yourselves through it together that's true 
But what made you think that he could be viewed in that aspect instead of someone being like the dean? Because the dean, he is also someone who can be very genuine when it comes to apologies, <laughs> not his not his ideals, which we know are very problematic and sort of escapist, yeah. <laughs> not based in reality <laughs> or well, logic. I don't know. I mean, even if the dean were to apologize, it wouldn't feel authentic. I'd be like, hmm. Uh, no, I mean, Joel, I think it's because that Joel is free from all the madness of the Dean, you know, he, he doesn't have all those weird things the Dean has. So, and also, I mean, Joel's just there. I mean, Joel is vibrant. He's, he's, um, he has an edge to him. I, I think, I think, I think Sank- Sasha is uh, Sanka slash Sasha. I think she admires people that have an edge to them, you know? Mm-hmm. And um, I just didn't think he would be like the Dean. There was no way. Cause he's not being fake about anything. He's not being mealy mouthed about anything. And he's not being sexless about things. I mean, you know, it's not going to be like, it's not going to be like nineties, you know, nineties stuff, you know? Purity culture. <laughs> yeah that sort of thing it's joel is definitely not purity culture i mean no granted he's not on andre's uh spectrum but andre is andre so Mm -hmm. very true yeah right but then did you feel that because he was denying himself any kind of romantic or sexual experience because as we know he denies himself all of this until well into his 20s when he starts getting close to malka and i guess he still wants to deny it, but then I guess, you know, things happen. And then I guess he kind of just gets over it and he realizes how stupid he was because he's like, there's no point in this. I mean, why did I waste so much time just to get this, you know, perverse sense of self-satisfaction? I don't know. I, I never really felt, I felt like he was going to get over his stuff. Right. But then the Dean never gets over it. Right. that's all I can say about the Dean because I'm going to rant for an hour if I don't stop myself but um the Joel Joel is very different from the Dean I mean there's hardly any commonalities with them I mean no something in common half-assed approach to that but you know Mm-hmm. but but you know joel just never felt sexless or anything like that even if he was self-denying i said sooner or later that boy's going to break he's going to realize how dumb he was and um he's going to get off his high horse and walk into the world right and like the dean who is you know in the world but not of the world the dean never got out of his hot never got off of his high horse and I don't know. The Dean is just one of those sad sexless men. I mean, even if he did not have his certain barriers preventing him, he could still be fun loving and romantic. I mean, Andre would certainly give advice on that. That's true. Right. And I think he just fakes his way a lot through his emotions and it's very disingenuous, but yes, moving on to the second picture, which is called home. And it shows um, Joel at home on his balcony surrounded by plants definitely I like this one so 
I guess to, to analyze this from artistic point of view, I think we're, um, so we're looking here at another golden ratio, but here we have it vertical. So vertical is always a lot more, um, it's more standard. You see it a lot more because golden ratio when it's, golden ratio when it's vertical is a lot more easier to fit into a canvas. Um, the audience can explore it more because it's upright. A lot of times we, we tend to look at things from portrait view better than we do landscape view. Mm -hmm. um, but I like this, this is very, I'm just gonna take off my glasses because I wanna appreciate the colors a bit better um, again. But I love the color of sunset or sunrise. I think that could indicate, um, you know, like the beginning of something or the end of something, you know, like the beginning of a good thing, the end of a bad thing. Um, and then also two beginnings in different ways. Uh, if it's sunrise, it means the beginning of a new day and, and lots of active things going on. If it's a sunset, it means the beginning of night and night is a time that I think it's devalued a lot. You know, people say, oh, it's the end of the day, but night provides a lot of respite, repose, reflection. And I think it's a time of great interchange uh, when you think about it. So this could be interpreted as sunset or sunrise. I personally kind of prefer sunset and maybe Alka's coming home and she sees this and this would be a dream come true for many of us, but you know, Alas, you know, Malka is a very fortunate woman. Um, but I also love the colors and compositions. Again, it's very modern in its approach. You know, we have the light blue, I mean, the light pinks, pardon me. The light pinks, you have the different shades of green. Um, I think the plants represent growth and vitality, um, rebirth, a sort of resurrection, if you will. Um, and the growth of something new, I think. And it's a beautiful approach to this. And it's also also just for, for something of a shallow reason, it's wonderful to see Joel in the tank top. <laughs> kind of like, you know, street Stanley from Streetcar Called Desire, but without the dysfunction. Without the dysfunction. I mean, to be honest, I really hate how Stanley, like so many other men, demonized the uh, tank top. And now men who wear tank tops are, they, they call it the, the nasty thing. They call it the wife beater. So <laughs> thanks, Stanley. Thank you. Yeah, I think it's because of him, because of his balance. It's because of that. And uh, I, I guess sometimes a similar tank top in Russia gets a little bit demonized, but then it gets kind of masculinized, the, the telecon. The tele oh, yeah, that one. <laughs> Unfortunately, we will not, not see Andre wear that because he's not a sailor. No, he's not in the Navy, honestly. I sometimes wish he would have gone in the Navy. Then we could see him wear that. Just draw it anyways. Yeah, I'll just draw it anyway. I mean, maybe, maybe Tamara has a dream he's wearing it. <laughs> Exactly. But yes. But yes, actually, you know, Joel would look good in a tell and Kaya too. Maybe. I know it makes no sense. <laughs> Maybe he could do it for like, I don't know, the, the theater stuff. Who knows? They're trying on different clothes now. That's true. I mean, Alex brings one over. Uh, wait, what if Alex is in the Navy? Oh, hey, we could do that. I'll, I'll develop more stuff about him. He's definitely going to be closer to Katya now that he's replacing Sam as her love interest. Because <laughs> Sam is not going to be with her. He's actually going to be with Lena as, you know, I brainstormed. And it's not going to be that 
great of a marriage but it's okay I would just say it's okay I mean for him he's not someone who is expecting a kind of really close or extremely emotional relationship as long as it's based on a good friendship and they have fun that's good enough for them yeah definitely I mean you know Sam I think Sam's biggest happiness is becoming famous and you know getting his name out there and you know, like I said, Joel's main happiness, however, is connecting and finding a person and he does with Malka. And Malka finds out that this is her source of great happiness too. And to find somebody who shares her own curiosity of knowledge and discovery. Um, but yes, back to this work, I think it um, encapsulates, you know, what is home? I mean, you know, we, we often think of home in, in many different ways, but what if a person sets out to create a new home and it's basically the launching pad of one's own rehabilitation and, and source of love and a sense of renewal and rebirth, you know, doesn't always have to be the old home, which was governed by dysfunction and bad experiences and past things and people who don't love you the right way. But, you know, what if there's a new home? And I think this is what it represents. We have the open air, we have the symbolism of the plants and the sky reflecting a change and a transition. That's very true, right? And this, the plants are reflecting that there's something growing, you know, something is being cultivated and nourished, which was not being nourished in the old home, which was, you know, Joel's parents. Right. I'm feeling all their plants are dead. I don't that's, think they have any. That's true. I mean, if they had a plant like a little aloe vera, it'd probably be killed by somebody. It's because, of the the it's because of the hoarding. Exactly. Poor Alan Merrick never saw the sunlight. <laughs> no, it's because it's being crowded by all those random papers and, you know, old books and like mold and stuff. Uh, someone called the TLC people. <laughs> oh my gosh. Yeah, so we'll talk briefly about his parents here, but we won't spell too much because I think they need a podcast episode all of their own. But like we talked about before, I think Joel's parents, who are Pinhas and Rachel, they have a lot of problems. And I think one of their problems is covered in a short story I wrote, which hasn't been published yet. And Joel says that one of the problems his, his parents always had was their inability to look past the surface. That's definitely right. They, they do have that in, in, a, in a inability, unfortunately. They can't let go of the past. They can't look past the surface and it's what's killing them. You know, Joel, on the other hand, he his eyes are open. He knows exactly what's going on. He just has to act on it. And that's, that's his main holdback. Mm-hmm, exactly. And moving on to the final picture, which is of him and Malka. This is going to take some while to discuss, but this is going to be very, very rewarding. And we're going to be talking about how he makes that final step to develop as a person, right? Exactly. Exactly. Right. right. So here it is. And it's part of the first chapter of the Book of Joel, which once again is on tapas, and you can read it in the description. And they don't say anything in this scene. They're just looking at each other and exchanging these looks. I love this. So uh, first and foremost, I just want to get it out there. People, please read it on Tapas. Um, I will send you a bunch of hearts. Um, doc, if Dr. Bones had money, he would, he, would, he would pay all of you to read it because it's that good and you deserve to read it. You shouldn't let it stop you. 
Mm-hmm. Um, and say, you say, oh, looks too psychological. It's not, it's, it's wonderfully deep. And if you want a beautiful love story unfolding before your eyes, read it. Um, but to get onto this artistically, um, so it actually follows a, it's a different composition. This is a composition we would kind of call as like a heart-shaped or, you know, a pairing kind of composition. So that in itself is kind of timeless. I mean, we see it in various, and it's usually, of course, always with a couple, you know, you, you get your classical examples, like, let's just say, let's just take Psyche and Eros, you know, the, the painting or statue depictions always have them in this kind of angle or composition. Um, so this is beautifully done. I mean, it's, it's tasteful, you know, it, it shows two people completely stripped of any distractions or pretense, both literal and figuratively. And they're at their most vulnerable and they're communicating without words. Um, it kind of reminds me of that Deepash Mode song, Enjoy the Silence, where it says, um, you know, words are very unnecessary and the silence speaks all. And mm-hmm. I think that applies for this. I think it does because it's not so much that the silence is wordless, but when there's no verbal interaction being outputted out there, I think there is a deluge of expressions that can be conveyed a lot more articulately and more meaningful in that moment of silence than if you were to fill that with a verbal conversation or declaration. Mm-hmm. Right. And this is where Joel and Sam once again contrast because Sam would definitely fill this silence with a lot of verbal declarations, right? Too much verbal declarations. Why would be shooting off like a parrot? I'd feel like, hmm, Sam, can you please shut your lips for a minute? <laughs> <laughs> He'd be like, hey, baby. He'd be like, you know, this cheesy, you know, kind of flirtatious type. <laughs> oh, I'd say, no, me no gusta. No, thank you, Sam. <laughs> oh, but, but yeah, to this, um, like I said, moment of silence can convey a lot i mean i remember one time a person told me this is what they want to call like finish silence you can communicate a lot in that moment of silence or a a prelude of of a long interval of of silence that Mm -hmm. that can convey a lot more than just meaningless conversation which isn't to say you know some couples need verbal communication you know i think someone like Andre probably needs a lot of verbal communication. Not that he fills it with inane conversation, but Andre's always going to talk his mind. I mean, you know, he mad or passionate, you know, boy be spilling the words, you know. True. Mm-hmm. I mean, the only way you should get you should get worried is if Andre d- stops talking and then you need to worry he's, something's wrong and, you know, got to get on the case to see what's wrong with him. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, but some people don't need that. And I, I think I have a couple like that, uh, Gerda and Kai, which we'll probably be exploring because a lot has changed for them now, but we'll get onto that in another podcast. But um, I, think, I think it's these moments of silence that I think people can connect much better to, like Joel and Malka, because it's like when they look at each other, they can communicate so well. And that's very, very rare to find, you know? Mm-hmm. It's very, very rare. And 
also, I think the silence just allows them to be themselves and not worry about what to say because they know what they want to say. So why not non-verbally communicate it? And also just commune in the quietude and the placitude, if you will, of the moment. Very true. And also, yeah. I think sometimes they just don't feel like talking because there's no need to. They already know what they're going to say, like you said. And, you know, they just want to kind of relax around each other. And that's, that's the most important thing. They just kind of want to bask in each other's presence. Very much. That's a beautiful way to put it. They find each other's, they find, they find a warmth and light in each other's presence and they just want to bask in that. And that's a wonderful thing when a couple can find that. Very few couples find that, even happy couples. Absolutely. And I yeah. think, you know, Sam, I don't think he appreciates this, right? He, he always wants to fill the silence with something random or a joke or a reference. And maybe I think he does like being with his significant other, but then sometimes he, he likes being independent and he would rather not always be around them. What do you think? I think Sam has to fill the silence because he doesn't like it. He doesn't know what to really put out there in the silence. I don't think he likes to relax um, because he always has to be moving. And also too, I think it requires a lot of opening up and letting that other person open up too. And I don't think Sam wants to do that because he's very self-focused. So he's always running, he's always rambling. He's always jazzing and snapping off, you know, doing this, doing that. So, you know, Sam is more of a person conducting a, a symphony that sometimes sounds like more like a cacophony. <laughs> <laughs> and that's well put, exactly. Yeah. So that contrast again, once with Joel. Very much with Joel. I mean, Joel is kind of like the equivalent of, it's, it's 2 a.m. and you're listening to Chopin etudes on mm -hmm. your, your ear pods. Right. As we talked about, he's kind of, you know, dark academia. He is dark academia. I mean, I know this is just my personal thing, but yeah, boy is, uh, he's dark academia and I love it. All for dark academia out there, people. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah. Right. So this is the final part of the, you know, Joel's development as a person, as we see in the book of Joel, he's finally opened up and it's the first chapter. So we're going to see a lot more of him reflecting upon these changes he's made as he grows as a person. Definitely. And I can't wait to see the journey that you'll be taking him on. I can't wait to see it just unfold and the difficult moments in between to reach that place. Um, you know, as well as the, the blossoming relationship between he and Malka. And, you know, perhaps the road is always riddled with hardships, but they get, they overcome that. And I think that makes it all the more inspiring and beautiful, I think. Mm -hmm. In the future, we're going to have to do a podcast just focused on Malka and from her perspective, because, yeah. you know, this one was totally focused on Joel and his journey, but Malka also has her own journey. And I think Joel also helps her develop at the end as well. Definitely, definitely. I, I, we, we need to do Malka. She's a dear, darling girl who goes through her own remarkable and compelling journey as well. Right. Just to summarize it briefly for our fans, in your view, what change does Joel promote in Malka? I think having more self-confidence. I think learning to let go of always 
taking care of everyone but denying yourself you know like Malka takes care of all of her family but she doesn't take care of herself I don't mean physically but emotionally and maybe sometimes physically because that girl's like working like two or three jobs and trying to help out her family and the thing is is anyone really helping her you know and then I think Joel also promotes the change of asking Malka what she wants out of life before it was always like everyone expects her to serve the family and you know be the good daughter and sister and do everything and you know give up every last copper penny for her family but no one's ever asked her what she wants and, and what she desires from life and what makes her happy and if she's getting enough love and not just tired platitudes that don't do anything for her you know is she, is she really being satisfied in life and you know I think Joel asks those questions and I think he he makes her kind of realize that I think for the first time or at least make her bold enough to to want to question that and find out the answer for herself absolutely and we're going to see more of this in chapters two and three in the book of Joel where you know they actually talk because as you know in chapter one so far and for the rest of chapter one it's just going to be mostly Joel thinking about himself and how how he's developed as a person because you know he can be a little bit as you described self-absorbed at times but it doesn't mean that he is selfish it's just that sometimes he's very focused in his own experience or as he calls it his own subjectivity Exactly, exactly. So it's going to be interesting to see him kind of rouse from that when he gets deeply, deeply more involved with Malka and see him open and connect to Malka. I mean, that's a beautiful transition, a beautiful, pivotal turning point, I think. And I want to, I can't wait to see how that's going to be depicted. Absolutely. We're also going to see more of, you know, a little bit of, you know, the second picture we just saw, the home in chapter three. And we're actually going to see how both of them interact in that chapter in the context of a home. Right, right. It's going to be interesting to see that because I think they'll make a fine home. I think they will. I think it'll be a beautiful home built on understanding and trust and, you know, this kind of um, beautiful concept of confluence. Mm-hmm, definitely. Yeah. Well, thank sure. you so much, Tete, for this amazing review of these three works and how we tied it into the book of Joel, which, you know, you're one of the biggest supporters I have for this work. So thank you so much. And we're not going to spoil this, but we are working on a collab project together that you will be releasing on your tapas. And it's <laughs> somewhat related to Malka and Joel, right? It is. It is. It's quite... Um... It will be very unexpected, but hopefully people will draw some parallels and think, oh, interesting take. And people are not going to believe what it will be. It'll be the most unexpected thing you would think that would come from this. But you will see it soon, maybe by end of June, hopefully I'll have 50% of the story written down. It's now turning into something epic. And suddenly I've, I've turned into like, I'm writing like, oh, what was going to be one sentence turned out to be three pages, but it'll be good, I swear. I know, it's already amazing from what I saw. And you're also going to be doing art for it. So I'm so excited to see it. It's going to be a full-blown tapas work. Full-blown, kids. It's going to have full-blown colored illustrations for each chapter, maybe two, a beginning and end. 
and chapters, installations. It will be like reading a delightful book. So I promise I will deliver the best I can. And um, I would say it into June, expect a uh, release on that. Right. Thank you so much for your support on Joel and Malka and their stories. And thank you so much for reviewing these works again today. Absolutely. It was an honor. Thank you for having me on here. Thanks for letting me do it. And above all, thank you for sharing your work with me when you develop it. That's an honor to be part of it, to watch the process of it. Right. Thank you so much again. Bye. Bye.